Travis, I'm glad you got that verse right. I just about had to preach a whole different sermon if you had to stay with that other one. Whew, that's scary. We're concluding this week our series on the people Jesus met. And uh, we've looked at these different individuals that encountered Christ in the gospel story in very limited encounters, very short, very, uh, you know, we pass by them in a few verses. But we see in those interactions how Jesus dealt with certain people from different backgrounds and with different stories. And we've tried to look at that and understand Jesus a little bit better and understand also where we fit in that story. It's very easy to kind of hover above the story with a bird's eye view and not really put ourselves in it. But we are, and, and we should, because we all have a different journey that we've been on in life. We've all encountered Jesus in different ways from time to time, in our highs and our lows, and it's important to see how Jesus interacts with people who are in those same places we've been. We looked at Jesus meeting the outcast, the Samaritan woman. We looked at him meeting the seekers, both the selfish seekers and those truly chasing after a relationship with God in Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler. We looked at Jesus as he dealt with the sinner and the adulterous woman. And last week we talked about Jesus and the believing blind, those who did not understand what they were looking at when they were present with him, but who truly believed in him on the road uh, to Emmaus. And this week we conclude by placing ourselves in a story that maybe we don't often put ourselves. And that is Jesus meeting the condemned. Now, obviously, we're doing some of this out of order. I didn't intend to go chronologically, but uh, we're going to go backwards because last week we talked about post-resurrection. We're going to go back to the crucifixion now. And we're going to look at Jesus as he hung on the cross, and the gospel accounts tell us he was not crucified alone. He was crucified with two others who are identified, at least in a couple of the accounts, as thieves or robbers. And we, we refer to them as the, the two thieves between whom Jesus was crucified. If you look in John's account, uh, it, it identifies there being these people crucified with him. Even indicates that they, they, plural, were hurling insults at him. That both of these men, uh, and that's interesting given what we know will happen later in the story, that they were, they were joining in with the crowd insulting him. Matthew's account identifies them, and Luke's account, I believe, identifies them as robbers or thieves. Mark's account also covers this interaction, just mentions that he was crucified between them. But when we come to Luke's account, it shows that there was one who was hurling insults at him. So a bit of a discrepancy there with how it's described. I don't know that it means that there were two who were insulting and one just had a change of heart, or if the writer was just being general because he doesn't record the, the interaction between them. He just says there were two others there that he was crucified between, and they were insulting him too. So uh, we're not really sure. It's, it's recorded different ways. But Luke's account, and Luke generally tends to be a lot more detailed in his accounts. We've talked about that before because of his use of source material and, and interviews. So we're going to go to Luke's account and look at how Jesus interacted with two people who were condemned. They were there alongside him, suffering the same punishment as him for a crime that would have been, I mean, thievery or stealing. Um, it's interesting how this punishment is used for such vastly different things. Crucifixion was used to instill fear. 
It was a type of punishment that was done to try and place people back under control of the governing authorities. It was meant to scare them. They would, they, the Romans would go into towns as they would take over territory and they would literally line people up and just count them off and every 10th person was crucified and they'd line them along the road. The word decimate, when we say something is decimated, the root word there, the desa, 10, that was literally what they did. They would decimate a town. They would count off the people and a 10th of them would be crucified to instill fear. Crucifixion was the worst type of punishment. It was expertly done to lengthen the suffering and it was expertly done to make a point. Crucifixion was a proclamation as much as it was a death penalty. So Jesus is there. These two are with him. One or both of them is insulting him. And we see a conversation take place according to Luke. We look in Luke chapter 23, going to the verse that, or, or near the verse that Travis read. It says in verse 32, Two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death. So they come to the place, and everybody's insulting them. They're casting lots. Now, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Okay. Now, notice, again, we're going to have this dichotomy in the two people that Jesus is meeting. Just as we did with the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, here we have two. Both of them condemned, both of them suffering the same punishment as Christ. One of them says, are you not the Christ? Aren't you? There, there's kind of an implicit admission there if you want to look at it that way and say, hey, you're Jesus. You're the son of God. Save yourself and us. Now, it doesn't appear that this is a genuine confession of Christ as the son of God because he's insulting him and then he turns to him and says, well, Aren't you supposed to be Jesus? There's kind of this almost sarcastic tone. Interesting place to decide to get sarcastic with the Son of God while you're about to die, but that was his choice. And he says, well, save yourself and us. If you want to take the best possible interpretation of this statement, this guy's grasping at anything he can to save himself. If this guy happens to actually be the Son of God, great, then go ahead and just save us. If you want to take what he's saying as anything close to a genuine confession of faith, what he's looking for doesn't seem to reflect any kind of true faith. Look at what he's asking for in that verse. And as you're doing that, let's move forward in the story. As he says this, verse 40, the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, here we have two men whose lives up to this point seem to have been pretty similar, lives of crime, and now suffering punishment for it. They mirror one another, and yet one of them in desperation is crying out, grasping at straws, maybe this is the Son of God, or maybe it's just a chance to go out insulting the world because you're angry. But he says this thing to, to Jesus, and the other one 
rebuking him. Now, if he was hurling insults earlier, he's had a change of heart. But he rebukes him and says, hey, what are you doing? We're hanging up here just like him. But this guy didn't do anything wrong. It's interesting that even the objective opinion of an outsider could see that Jesus didn't deserve to be there. It was pretty evident that he was railroaded by a corrupt system. And this guy identifies it, recognizes it, and even confesses it and says, he doesn't deserve to be here, but we do. Who are you to insult him like this? And then he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Keep me in mind. Just remember me. Interesting, both of them ask a question. Both of them make a request. Both of them are asking Jesus to take pity on them and to acknowledge them. The first one is asking for acknowledgement and pity in a physical sense. Get us off of this cross. Get us out of this predicament. Save our lives. Save me physically. Here is a man condemned physically and concerned for alleviating that condemnation physically. He wants his life saved. The other one, the other one is also asking for something in recognition of his suffering, but he is not concerned with the physical. He's accepted his physical condemnation. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He doesn't say, save my life. He doesn't say, get me off this cross. He says, when you are glorified, when you come into power, when you begin to reign as this crucifixion and death will precipitate, remember me. Just keep me in mind. Humbly, and, and who, who wouldn't be humbled by being crucified, but humbly just ask Jesus to remember him. And in his rebuke of the other thief acknowledges and recognizes who Jesus is, at least to a degree, at the very least that he is innocent, at the very least that there is something about him that is God-like, and at the very least there is a kingdom that is coming and he wants to be a part of it. Jesus' response to that man and his confession of faith and his asking for Jesus to remember him is very simple. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. What a beautiful statement, a beautiful sentiment. We reflect often on the words that we hope to hear or that we believe we will hear on that day when we stand before God. Welcome home, good and faithful servant. Enter into the glory of your father. Very similarly, this man heard words of peace in his moment of death, coming death. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, right now, this physical suffering will end and you will have a place with me in paradise. Now, I want to make a little disclaimer here because I feel like sometimes I have to because this is often pointed to when people are discussing the issue of baptism. You know, we teach baptism for the remission of sins as a part of salvation. We teach that the Bible says that that's a part of what we do in our acceptance of Jesus Christ and our proclamation of faith. So people point to this and say, well, look there, Jesus saved a guy, he wasn't baptized. Well, we also understand when we read the book of Hebrews and other places 
that the testament or the covenant doesn't go into effect until the death of the one who made it. Jesus isn't dead yet. In fact, the thief died, um, uh, died first because when they go around and they, or excuse me, Jesus died first. So the covenant comes into force, but Jesus saved him prior to that. Now that might be splitting hairs, but I think it's important to not give an opportunity for criticism of what we believe the Bible teaches and, and what uh, it seems the scriptural facts bear out. And you know what? At the end of the day, uh, if Jesus decides to save someone without baptism, that's Jesus's business and not mine. So when we look at this interaction, let's don't get distracted by um, the salvation itself and how that occurred. Jesus is the son of God. He represents God. He is interconnected with God. And by his sovereign choice, he declared a man saved. He said, you'll be with me in paradise. I'm willing to accept that. Because the deeper story is not the fact that he's going to be in heaven and there's scriptural questions and we need to do a full exegesis of Acts chapter 238. No, the question is, and the point is, that two people hung beside Jesus in the same predicament as him, their lives being taken from them in shameful and painful ways, designed to maximize suffering and lengthen that period of imminent death. One of them chose in his condemnation essentially to curse God and die the way that Job was encouraged to do. Just give it up. Just go out mad at the world because of your condemnation, insulting the Son of God and asking, if nothing else, for your physical redemption, your physical salvation, on the other hand, there's a man who in his hour of death chose to see Jesus as the Son of God, accept that for what he said it was, and to ask for his spiritual redemption. Now, where do we fit in this story? We're not being crucified. We're not thieves. None of us in here are criminals that I'm aware of. And I won't tell. Snitches get stitches or something like that. But none of us are in the position that this, these people are in. So how do we fit into the story? Well, we have to understand what condemnation looks like. We have to understand that condemnation for us is not simply hanging on a cross because we've been convicted of a crime. It's not meeting Jesus in that time of need and choosing if we're going to insult him and be angry at the world or if we're going to accept him and pray for grace and salvation. It's understanding why we are condemned and that we are condemned. And we don't hang on a physical cross, but we have hung on the cross because Jesus hung on the cross. What we did to deserve the cross hung with him and we were able to avoid death. Let's look at the words of Paul in the book of Romans. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in, Christ, in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, listen, no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
we are all condemned. We are all condemned. And we, like the thieves on the cross, deserve to be there. That's what the one recognized. Hey, we deserve to be here. This guy didn't. Could we say the same thing as we look upon Jesus and his crucifixion? We deserve to be there, not him. We are the thieves on the cross. We are the criminals deserving of our execution next to one who doesn't, but who does it on our behalf. Can you imagine, by the way, if you're Jesus, you're giving your life for the entire world, for the sins of the world, there you hang, dying because of what others have done, even the ones that are next to you being punished for the very sin that you are there to forgive. That would, I don't know that I could handle that. Jesus could. I'm thankful he did. Because as Paul says, there's no distinction. There's no, there's no categories. You're just all going to hell without Jesus. That's the simple fact of the matter. Listen to what Paul says, he continues. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly, that's the crucifixion, as a propitiation, that's the satisfaction of a debt, in his blood, through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, just as those men hung on the cross for their sin, for their crime, we too deserve to be there for our sin. There's no discrimination about who deserves death for sin. We all do. But Jesus, innocent, hung there in our place. And Paul says he did it so that God could declare us saved. Jesus met two condemned men. One chose in anger to reject him and insult him. The other chose in humility to accept him and proclaim him. One was declared saved. The other we forget about. One was declared saved because Jesus Christ represented God's grace, the propitiation, the satisfaction of our debt, our sin debt, which was paid in his blood so that God could say, you belong to me now. You are mine. Just as Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, God says, you are my children. Believe in my son and come be with me. The declaration of our salvation and the salvation of those who believe is made clear by Paul in Romans and it's made clear by the death of Christ on the cross, the Redeemer. Of all the people Jesus met, if there's one that we can relate to most, it ought to be the criminals on the cross hanging for what they deserved, hanging for what they had done. But we see Jesus there between them hanging for something he didn't do, but he chose to for us. And Paul confirms this. All of us are under the condemnation of sin, if not for the blood of Jesus Christ. If not for the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Paul, excuse me, Jesus met the outcast. He welcomed them. And he told them who he was. He hadn't told anybody yet. And he told that Samaritan woman who he was. And she proclaimed it. He met the seekers. And in sadness, the self-seeker walked away. And in joy, the God-seeker changed his life, Zacchaeus. He met the sinner, the adulterous woman, and he said, I don't condemn you, I love you, now go and change your life. Declared his love without prerequisite. And a change was made because of it. Those who are believing but are blind, he was patient with and he revealed himself and he created such uh, enthusiasm amongst his followers in the time following his crucifixion, reminding us that he is alive and well and active when he met the believing blind. Those who sometimes see what they want to see, not what's right in front of them. He was patient. But with the condemned, with the condemned, he hung there in spite of the fact that he didn't have to. He wasn't guilty. They were. And even in light of their guilt and his innocence, he stayed there, he suffered it, and he brought people along with him by his death. He brought all of us along with him by his death. If there's any one of these we relate to, it must be the condemned, because that's what we are. I think at different times in our life, we're all of the people that Jesus met. But ultimately, we're condemned without him. And he hung in our place and he suffered death so that he could say to us, today you'll be with me in paradise. I will pay the debt so that you can be saved, so that you can be brought home to a father who is seeking you, searching for you, loving you, and yearning for you. He made that possible for us. Jesus Christ is the only way to a home with God. He is all we have and he is all we need. And I hope that the gospel is real to you. I hope that the gospel is something you can feel you've experienced, not just something you read. I hope that you see that Jesus was a real person, not just a character in a story. But I hope that you see that you have a place in the story as well. As Jesus met those who were trying to get through this life the same way we are. He had compassion, he had love, he had mercy. And he had something about him that transformed them. None of these people met Jesus and left the interaction the same. Even if, even if they didn't make a positive change, they were different after it was over. Jesus transforms us when we meet him. See yourself in the story. And know that you continue to write the story. You and I, as we live our lives, as we share the gospel, as we grow the kingdom, we're continuing to write this story of God and his people. Write it well. Tell others. Remember that Jesus has met you and he has loved you and he has died for you. Go meet others and share the same. That's the whole point of the gospel. If you have a need this morning to receive prayer from your fellow Christians, to be strengthened or encouraged, 
If you need to accept Jesus Christ in baptism, then I want to urge you to make that change in your life as soon as possible. Don't wait. Don't let the day get away from you before you're willing to do that. If there's something we can help you with, if there's something your church family can encourage you in and walk with you in, let us know as we stand and while we sing together.